Jeremiah chapter 26. We are in a new section here, and this is the fall and captivity of Judah. So this second section of Jeremiah is more biographical, where it's actually detailing some events in his life. We're going to go through this very quickly, because some of these events we've already seen at the end of Kings, where we saw at the end of Second Kings the fall of Jerusalem and how Nebuchadnezzar came in and took Zedekiah and blinded him and all that kind of stuff, and how he set up um, Gedediah as governor and all that kind of stuff. So this division is primarily focusing on 586 when Nebuchadnezzar II came. Now remember, Nebuchadnezzar came in three waves. He came in 605 and took a whole bunch of people, including Ezekiel. And then he came in 597 again and took some more people. And then he came in 580 and set up siege around Jerusalem. And then in 586, he finally completely sacked Jerusalem and tore down the temple and took it in captivity. And these are the events that are kind of leading up to that, like the year or two before 586 and going into that. So Jehoiakim is the king over Israel, sorry, Judah right now. And Yahweh instructed Jeremiah to confront the people who came to worship in the temple and warn them the destruction was coming. Now, once again, they didn't believe Jeremiah. There's two things kind of going on here. The people in Jerusalem did not believe Jeremiah because 99.9% of the prophets were saying there's going to be no judgment. There's going to be no exile. There's going to be none of that kind of stuff. And Jeremiah is kind of a lone prophet. And there were some prophets before him, like um, Micah and, and all of them, but they're kind of gone. And Jeremiah is kind of the only one around right now. And he's kind of lonely in that isolation and a lot of people don't have memories of them or the more charismatic propaganda line is more powerful than what some prophet said a years ago and so they don't like him so they're saying there's no way this can happen we have the temple and god will never destroy the sea with the temple then there's another group who are actually in exile right now they've been taken in exile but they're like oh this is just kind of a slap on the wrist and god's giving a warning but he would never destroy his chosen people we will eventually come back to Jerusalem. And look, the prophets even said we would come back. Yeah, but the prophets said you'd be destroyed first, and then you would come back, not you'd just go off and come back. So Jeremiah is incredibly unpopular right now. He is literally the only voice that's going against the party line of the government and everything that that propaganda is kind of pushing. He told him to go there. Now, Hananiah is another prophet that he's coming face to face with. And Hananiah is specifically prophesying the other side. Oh, no, God won't destroy us and all that kind of stuff. And so he's put on trial. Jeremiah is put on trial and brought before a bunch of officials. And these officials actually are kind of a little bit more on Jeremiah's side. They're kind of a little bit more hesitant because they've got a lot to lose here. And they're basically saying, you know what, there are some other prophets who kind of prophesied the same thing as Jeremiah. Can we truly be so confident that he's wrong? But when he went before Zedekiah, they advised him to let Jeremiah go, and Zedekiah did let him go. Now, Zedekiah is really wishy-washy. Like, one moment he's anti-God, and he's kind of like, I dare you, God, to go against me. I'm the chosen king. And another moment he's like trying to appease God and make him happy and obey him. 
And so he keeps going back and forth of like, I don't like Jeremiah, I'm going to arrest him. Oh, now I'm going to let him go because he's a prophet of God. So he's, he's probably more like he's wishy-washy and political than he is like playing with Jeremiah and trying to mess with him. So he's like, go. Now remember, Jeremiah is in the midst of all this. This would be so confusing, so lonely, and so depressing to be in a culture where you are politically prominent, like on their version of CNN, and you're the only voice that is saying what God wants. And one moment the government's for you and backing you, and the next moment the government is not backing you. And all your Twitter comments that everybody's putting on you and all your YouTube comments are so anti-you all the time, and your own family is betraying you and trying to kill you. And I can't imagine the isolation, the loneliness, and the depression is going through probably more so than the other prophets because Judah's gotten way worse than it has ever been, and Jeremiah is really kind of the only prophet left. And everybody who's kind of good and righteous, remember, they've already been carried off into exile because that's how God's preserving the righteous, by carrying them off into exile so that those in Jerusalem can be destroyed. Not everybody in Jerusalem will be destroyed. God actually has Jeremiah put a yoke on, like a yoke that you put on cows or oxen, and he has them go around. That's the other thing, like, sometimes the thing that God has Jeremiah and then Ezekiel, wait till we get to Ezekiel, strange things. If you saw this on Ohio State campus, you'd be like, you are a wacko Christian, and there is no way we should ever listen to you and support you. Yet God was telling them to do these things. And so he's got this yoke, and he's walking around like this is what Jerusalem is and that kind of stuff. And Hananiah says that's not true. So he actually breaks Jeremiah's yoke to symbolize the fact that Jeremiah is wrong. And then God says, because you broke my illustration, and you broke the yoke that I told Jeremiah to put on, I'm going to put you in a yoke. And you're going to be carried off in exile, and you're going to die. And that's exactly what ends up happening to Hananiah and in a year later when Nebuchadnezzar kind of comes in. Then Jeremiah writes a letter to those who are already in exile and he encourages them to pray and encourages them to become a part of the city of Babylon, to basically put down your roots, form businesses in Babylon, and, and promote the prosperity and the economy of Babylon because this is going to be your home. And what's interesting is, we already kind of mentioned this, but with Assyria, God uses Assyria to come in and take, destroy everybody there and take everybody off in the exile and destroy them because Israel was completely evil and wicked. But God is now kind of coming to Judah and saying, all those who go into exile, I'm going to go with you. And those who are left behind Jerusalem, they're going to be destroyed. And when you get carried off into exile in Babylon and Judah and Jerusalem is being destroyed, I'm going to go with you into exile, and I'm going to set up my presence with you there in exile and be a part of you until it's all over with and done. And we're going to see that in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, we actually see an image of the glory of God moving to Babylon to be with them. So Jeremiah is writing a letter kind of preceding the coming of God and saying, go ahead. Make this your home. Move into the cities. Become a part of Babylon. Support the economy. Make it prosperous. And submit to the government. Because this is your new home for a very, very, very long time. This is at this point in chapter 30 
that God begins to tell Jeremiah to start gathering things into actual writings. And he's going to commission Baruch. Or, um, Barak, yeah, Baruch. And Baruch is interesting because we're told specifically in the book of Jeremiah that Baruch wrote down everything that Jeremiah dictated. And he wrote it down. Now, the first time he writes it down, they take it to Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim, like, burns everything. Like, Jeremiah spends days writing his biography and all these messages. I mean, you know how big this book is. And, and he gives it to Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim rips it all up and destroys it. And then God's like, write it again. So, um, so he takes it to him, and that's what's going to happen. But he also is told to write these words, and Baruch writes everything down. Now, the second one that survives, Baruch, we're actually told that he put a seal on this scroll and put his signet ring into it. And what's really cool is like in around the 1970s or 80s, they found the actual seals of Baruch. Like they were digging up in archaeology and all that kind of stuff. And they uncovered these seals. And these seals literally had the stamp of Baruch on it and that kind of stuff. And it was, it was a phenomenal discovery using all this kind of stuff. So we're going to read in chapter 30, verses 1 through 24. So Yahweh spoke to Jeremiah. Yahweh God of Israel says, Write everything that I am about to tell you in a scroll. For I, Yahweh, affirm that the time will come when I reverse the plight of my people Israel and Judah, says Yahweh. I will bring them back to the land I gave their ancestors, and they will take possession of it once again. Now what's interesting here is that we have gone 30 chapters, and not one time has God said anything positive to Jerusalem or Judah yet. Now, most of the prophets have been small, like 12 chapters at the most. And even if we had to wait to the end, we got there pretty quickly. And even the big ones like Isaiah was like within the second chapter, he was saying positive things. But Jeremiah really was a depressing guy. And it's 30 chapters before we're getting to some positive news here. And even then, it's not going to be 100% constantly positive all the time. But it's also in Jeremiah 31 that we come to one of the most powerful prophecies of God saying that the exile will come to an end and God will restore them. So verse 4. So here is what Yahweh has to say about Israel and Judah. Yes, here is what he says. You hear cries of panic and of terror. There is no peace in sight. Ask yourselves this and consider it carefully. Have you ever seen a man give birth to a baby? Why then do I see all these strong men grabbing their stomachs in pain like women giving birth? And why do their faces turn so deathly pale? Alas, what a terrible time of trouble it is. There has never been any like it. It is a time of trouble for the descendants of Jacob. But some of them will be rescued out of it. And when the time for them is to be rescued comes, says Yahweh who rules over all, I will rescue from foreign subjugation. I will deliver you from captivity. Foreigners will then no longer subjugate them, but they will be subject to Yahweh their God and to the Davidic ruler whom I raise up as king over them. So God's saying this time is so terrible and the oppression of Nebuchadnezzar is so great that even your strongest men and warriors are in pain and suffering like a woman in childbirth because it's so oppressive. But this time will not last forever. A day will come when I will return you under a Davidic ruler. Verse 10, So I, Yahweh, tell you not to be afraid. You descendants of Jacob, my servants, do not be terrified, people of Israel, 
For I will rescue you in your descendants from a faraway land where you are captives. The descendants of Jacob will return to their land and enjoy peace. They will be secure and no one will terrify them. For I, Yahweh, affirm that I will be with you and will rescue you. I will completely destroy all the nations where I scatter you. But I will not completely destroy you. I will indeed discipline you, but only in due measure. I will not allow you to go entirely unpunished. So I'm going to punish you, but I will not destroy you. Moreover, Yahweh says to the people of Zion, Your injuries are incurable and your wounds are severe. There is no one to plead your cause. There are no remedies for your wounds. There is no healing for you. All your allies have abandoned you. They no longer have any concern for you, for I have attacked you like an enemy would. I have chastised you cruelly, for your wickedness is so great and your sin is so much. Why do you complain about your injuries? that your pain is incurable. I've done all this to you because your wickedness is so great and your sin is so much. But all you who destroyed you will be destroyed and all your enemies go into exile. Those who plunder you will be plundered. I will cause those who pillage you to be pillaged. Yes, I will restore you to hell. I will heal your wounds. I, Yahweh, affirm it. For you have been called an outcast of Zion whom no one cares for. Yahweh says, I will restore the ruined houses of the descendants of Jacob. I will show compassion on the ruined homes. Every city will be rebuilt on its former ruins. Every fortified dwelling will occupy its traditional site. Out of those places, you will hear songs of thanksgiving and the sounds of laughter and merriment. I will increase your number, and they will not dwindle away. I will bring them honor, and they will no longer be despised. The descendants of Jacob will enjoy their former privileges. The community will be established in my favor." And I will punish all who try to oppress them. One of their own people will be their leader. The ruler will come from their own number. I will invite him to approach me, and he will do so. For no one would dare approach me on his own. I, Yahweh, affirm it. Now this is obviously the Davidic king. And God is saying, I will invite the Davidic king to actually come into my presence and rule over you. Then you will again be my people, and I will be your God. Just watch. The wrath of Yahweh will come like a storm, like a raging storm. It will rage down on the heads of those who are wicked. The anger of Yahweh will not turn back until he has fully carried out his intended purposes. In the days to come, you will come to understand this. At that time, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they will be my people. I, Yahweh, affirm it. So he continues to go on and prophesy all that. And then we come to chapter 31, verse 23. I'm going to few, skip a few things. And this is where we're going to pick up. And this is where we're going to kind of stay here for a while. Because this passage is a very important passage in all the prophets. Yeah, and you'll probably recognize it. Because Galatians, he kind of alludes to it. And then the second half of the book of Hebrews is completely built on this passage. Completely built on this passage. Verse 23, Yahweh God of Israel, who rules over all, says, I will restore the people of Judah to their land and to their towns. When I do, they will again say of Jerusalem, May Yahweh bless you, you holy mountain, the place where righteousness dwells. The land of Judah will be inhabited by people who live in its towns, as well as the farmers and the shepherds with their flocks. I will fully satisfy the needs of those who are weary and fully refresh the souls of those who are faint. Then they will say, under these conditions, I can enjoy sweet sleep. When I wake up and look around, indeed, a time is coming, says Yahweh, when I will cause the people 
and animals to sprout up in the lands of Israel. And the pass I saw to it, that they were uprooted and torn down, and they were destroyed and demolished. But I will see to it that they are built up and firmly planted. I, Yahweh, affirm it. When the time comes, people will no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes, but the children's teeth have grown numb. Rather, each person will die for his own sins. The teeth of the person who eats the sour grapes will themselves grow numb. So this is a proverb that people were kind of quoting, trying to make up the point that God was unfair. He was unjust. And the idea is that the people, the parents have eaten sour grapes, but the children's teeth have grown numb. And the idea is that, like, the parents are being punished for their sins, but so are the children. They're being punished for the sins of the parents. And God is not just. See, that's a proof that God is not just. And God's making it clear that a time will come when people will not say that anymore. Now, it doesn't mean that God is saying, and this will be picked up later in Ezekiel when God will make this point, but God is not saying, I am unjust, and I'm punishing the parents for their sins and the children even though they're innocent. But a day is coming where I'll no longer be unjust with you. He is not saying that. What he's saying is, I am just. You think that I'm punishing you for your sins, and your children are getting punished, and they're not guilty, but I'm telling you, they are guilty. They are guilty in a way that you can't comprehend. You're not able to see it. In fact, just last week, you were telling me that you weren't guilty, and you were completely innocent and don't deserve it. But a time is coming where you will no longer see this, say this parable, because a time will come when you'll be punished, and you will truly look at yourselves for who you really are and your children, and you will realize that you are all guilty and you all deserve to be punished. And that's, we've seen that with people who are maybe trapped in a sin over and over again, and, and they're getting punished. They're like, this is not fair. It's not right. And then eventually they lose everything, and they hit rock bottom maybe, and they realize, oh, wow, I totally was wrong, and I totally deserve all this. And that's what God is saying. A time will come when you're punished, you're in timeout or whatever, and you will lose everything, and you will have the time to look at yourself, truly look at yourself, because you won't be distracted by your materialism or your pleasures or your vices, and you'll be able to say, God was just. God actually was just. We deserve this. And that's the point. So this is post-exile. They're saying that time will come. 